You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello again, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology. Welcome you back to review the highlights of our January 2019 edition. First, I want to wish you a Happy New Year and for a good year in 2019. Without further ado, we will move forward with my editor's picks. The first paper I want to highlight is entitled Safety Profile of Baricitinib in Patients with Active Rheumatoid Arthritis. It is by Smolin and colleagues from Medical University of Vienna, Austria, Stanford University and Oregon Health Sciences University, USA, Keio University, Japan, and Eli Lilly Corporation. Baricitinib is an oral once-a-day selective JAK1, JAK2 inhibitor, which is indicated for the treatment of adults with moderately to severely active rheumatoid arthritis. As the title suggests, this is a study examining the safety profile of baricitinib after a minimum of two-year follow-up in RA. The data was derived from an integrated database, which consisted of data from eight phase 1b two and three trials, and one long-term extension trial. As such, the study reports the safety of four milligrams versus two milligrams of baricitinib, as well as baricitinib versus placebo. A total of 3,492 patients received baricitinib with a median of 2.1 years of follow-up and a maximum of 5.5 years of exposure. The study compares the rates of death, adverse events leading to drug discontinuation, malignancies, major adverse cardiovascular events, or serious infections in these three groups of the two doses of baricitinib and placebo. It also looks at overall infection rates, including herpes zoster and tuberculosis, and other side effects, such as deep vein thrombosis or pulmonary embolism. Read the study to see if these rates of side effects differ between baricitinib and placebo and the two doses of baricitinib. The study examines if prolonged exposure to the drug increased these rates over time, including the rates of malignancy. After reading this article, you were able to determine for yourself if the proven efficacy of baricitinib and the new results reported here on the long-term safety profile a baricitinib warrants its use in patients with RA in your daily practice. The second paper to discuss looks at patients with psoriatic arthritis in order to determine which outcome measure should be used in a treat-to-target treatment plan of patients with psoriatic arthritis. The paper is appropriately entitled, What Should Be the Primary Target of Treat-to-Target in PSA? And is by Coates and colleagues from Leeds University, United Kingdom, and Universita d'Aglia de Tudi del Molise, Italy. The rationale behind this paper was based on the 2013 International Tax Force recommendations for treat to target in patients with PSA. The specific recommendation they focus on was that a major treat to target target should be either clinical remission or in an active disease of the musculoskeletal involvement, which includes arthritis, 
dactylitis, enthesitis, and axial disease. Clinical remission or inactive disease was defined as the absence of clinical and laboratory evidence of significant inflammatory disease activity. There were four potential remission definitions that they examined. First was the very low disease activity, or the VLDA, in which patients were required to meet all seven minimal disease activity criteria. Two, disease activity in PSA, or the DAPSA remission. Three, the clinical DAPSA remission. Or four, PSA disease activity score, or the PASTAS near remission. The aim of the study by Colts and colleagues was to investigate the proportion of patients that fulfilled these definitions and how much residual disease remained. So how did they do this? They looked at two different databases. One was a previously published randomized controlled trial entitled Tight Control of PSA with the acronym of TACOPA. This was a multi-centered RCT in which 206 adults with early PSA were randomized to tight control aiming at minimal disease activity or standard care. The second database consisted of 141 patients from Italy prospectively followed undergoing standard therapy and follow-up. Read this paper to find out the, how the four remission definitions performed in the TACOPA trial and which, if any, was superior in defining remission or clinically inactive disease. You will find out how these measures perform both at a total cohort level and at an individual patient level. The latter, of course, is what is important when determining outcome in practice rather than in a clinical trial. Find out which measure was the most stringent measure of remission and determine for yourself if this should be used in a treat-to-target goal in your clinical practice. The third paper to discuss looks at the effects of cardiovascular health on pregnancy outcomes in women with SLE. It is entitled Preconceptual Cardiovascular Health and Pregnancy Outcomes in Women with Systemic Lupus Erythematosus, and is by Udi and colleagues from Duke University, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and Johns Hopkins University, USA. There are two important background issues to this article. The first is the recognition that although pregnancy outcomes have improved in women with SLE, there is still an increased prevalence of preterm birth and small for gestational age in SLE pregnancies as compared to pregnancies in the general population. The second is that in pregnancies in the general population, the presence of maternal hypertension, obesity, and an abnormal lipid profile have been associated with poor pregnancy outcomes. The authors therefore hypothesize that maternal cardiovascular health may affect fetal growth and the risk of preterm birth. The aim of the study, therefore, was to determine the effects of preconceptual maternal cardiovascular health on pregnancy outcomes in women with SLA. Now the specifics of the study. The study examined the outcomes of live birth followed in the Johns Hopkins pregnancy cohort from the years 1987 to 2015. This is a prospectively collected cohort of all pregnancies 
followed at the Johns Hopkins University SLA clinic, who agreed to participate and who met either the ACR or the SLEC classification criteria for SLA. There were a total of 515 pregnancies and 431 live births. Of these 431 live births, 309 mothers had at least one cardiovascular measure of BMI, total cholesterol, and their blood pressure either within the year preceding the pregnancy or during the first trimester of gestation. These 309 live births were from 261 different mothers. These mothers were categorized into ideal, intermediate, or poor cardiovascular health as measured by the American Heart Association guidelines. The outcomes of interest were preterm birth, gestational age of birth, and small for gestational age. Multilinear and logistic regression analysis using generalized estimating equations estimated the association of cardiovascular health factors and outcome. Now the results. 31% of the 309 live births resulted in a preterm birth, and 18% of the infants were small for gestational age. BMI, total cholesterol, and blood pressure were within the American Heart Association guidelines in 56%, 85%, and 51% of the pregnancies, respectively. Read the study to find out the effects of poor or intermediate cardiovascular health on the rate of preterm birth and small for gestational age infants. Find out how BMI, total cholesterol, and blood pressure within the recommended ideal range prior to pregnancy can improve pregnancy outcomes in women with SLA. The penultimate paper again examines pregnancies in women with rheumatic diseases. It is entitled Hydroxychloroquine Levels Throughout Pregnancies Complicated by Rheumatic Disease implications for maternal and neonatal outcomes and is by Belovich and colleagues from Duke University and Northwestern University, USA. As discussed in the previous paper regarding women with SLE, pregnancies and many other rheumatic diseases have been associated with neonatal complications. Hydroxychloroquine is a medication that is safe in pregnancies and reduces overall disease activity and the number of flares. In some studies, its use has been associated with reduced risk of premature birth. The aim of the study was to evaluate hydroxychloroquine concentrations during pregnancy and relate these levels to neonatal outcomes and maternal disease activity. They also examined how these concentrations can vary during pregnancies. They performed an observational study of 50 pregnancies in women with rheumatic disease who were on hydroxychloroquine during their pregnancies over a three-year period who were followed in the Duke Autoimmunity and Pregnancy Registry. They used mass spectrometry to measure hydroxychloroquine levels in 145 samples from the 50 pregnancies. They then categorized patients into subtherapeutic therapeutic and high hydroxychloroquine levels and looked at the relationship between these levels and the major outcomes of interest. The majority of levels were from patients with SLE, while mothers with RA and JRA were the next 
and the remaining included undifferentiated connective tissue disease and a variety of other autoimmune diseases. The 50 pregnancies resulted in 46 measurable neonatal outcomes. Read the paper to find out the relationship between average hydroxychloroquine concentrations when they were divided into the three levels of low therapeutic and high, and the frequency of preterm delivery and gestational age at the delivery. You will find out if the relationship between these average levels and the neonatal outcome was the same or different in the pregnancies of mothers with lupus or other rheumatic diseases. After reading the paper, you will find out the effect of disease activity on neonatal gestational age in these pregnancies, and you will see the intra-patient hydroxy level variation throughout pregnancy. You can then decide for yourself if monitoring hydroxychloroquine levels during the pregnancy of women with rheumatic diseases should be part of routine care. The last article to discuss is an editorial which accompanies the article I just discussed on the effect of hydroxychloroquine levels and pregnancy outcomes, but is also relevant to the previous article entitled Preconceptual Cardiovascular Health and Pregnancy Outcomes in Women with Systemic Lupus Erythematosus. The editorial is entitled Too Little of a Good Thing, Hydroxychloroquine in Pregnancy by Berman from the University of Texas, Southwestern, USA. Dr. Burms gives her assessment of the results of the studies on the role of measuring hydroxychloroquine levels during pregnancies of women with rheumatic diseases and the pros and cons of measuring these levels. I strongly encourage all readers to examine this excellent editorial, which also reviews the effects of disease control on pregnancy outcomes of women with inflammatory arthritis and SLE. Dr. Burmes reviews the rationale for continuing hydroxychloroquine use during pregnancy and the lack of safety concerns associated with its use in pregnancy. You may or may not be surprised to find out that despite the evidence of the proven safety of hydroxychloroquine during pregnancies, the slightly less than 70% of rheumatologists who answered a survey said they would continue hydroxychloroquine during pregnancies in their clinical practice. Now, I want to thank you all for listening to my review of what I felt were the particularly important articles appearing in the January 2019 issue of the Journal of Rheumatology. I hope my summaries will lead you to reading not only these five articles, but in fact, all of the articles appearing in the January 2019 issue of the journal. Please read either the print edition or the online edition, which can be found at www.jroom.org. If you have any comments on this summary or any articles appearing in the journal of rheumatology, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com. Again, wishing you a happy new year and hope you'll listen to next month's edition of the Editor's Picks for February 2019.